This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Best way to engage with people in the industry to start a networking relationship is to ask them. Welcome to Game Dev Advice, the game developers podcast, your place for resources and in-depth conversations with other game development professionals. I'm your host, John J.P. Podlasic. I've worked at 10 different game companies, starting back in 1989 with the TurboGrafx-16. Over the decades, I've developed games like Mortal Kombat, Avengers Initiative, Beavis and Butthead, and numerous others. I now work for a startup called Level X. But this podcast isn't about me. It's about you and the game development community. So if you have questions or ideas, give a call. 224-484-7733 or go to the gamedevadvice.com website. So let's kick things off with the new Game Dev Advice. In this episode, I welcome Kate Edwards. Kate's a 27 plus year veteran and outspoken award-winning advocate of the game industry and the executive director of the Global Game Jam as well as the former executive director of the International Game Developers Association, IGDA. She is also a professional geographer and corporate strategist who pioneered and specializes in content culturalization. Following 13 years at Microsoft, she's consulted on many game and non-game projects for BioWare, Ubisoft, Lego, Google, Amazon, Facebook, and other companies. She was also profiled in the December 2018 publication, Women in Gaming, 100 Professionals of Play, and was most recently honored at GDC 2020 with the Ambassador Award at the Game Developers Choice Awards. Hey, Kate. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. How about you? I'm doing well, all things considered. Um, Where are you calling in from tonight? I am calling in from Seattle. Excellent. How are you doing with COVID-19 and everything going on? Like everybody, it's been an adjustment. Um, right. You know, the working from home part has been nothing new because I've been working from home since 2005. <laughs> but the thing that is different for me is that the last, over the last several years, I usually spend at least 75% of the year traveling. So when um, the first quarter of 2020, I was all over the place in fact, I added up my miles as I always do mm-hmm. at the end of the year, and I still managed to get around the earth two and a half times before COVID hit. Wow. That's but 60,000 miles, something like that? Or, yeah, yeah, it's quite, a, yeah, yeah, 
24,901 miles is the circumference at the equator. So <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, um, so I was very busy, but then when COVID hit, you know, I realized, okay, I guess I'm not going to be traveling anywhere. Mm-hmm. It was actually turned out to be the longest I've been home in many years. I've never been home long. I've never been home for this long Yeah, since, you know, a long time ago. So, you know, that was an adjustment. Um, I had to get used to being more domestic than I, than I normally <laughs> would be. Yeah which was not necessarily a bad thing. I, you know, now that we're on this horizon with a vaccine and everything, I'm really hopeful that maybe, you know, towards the latter half of 2021, I can get in the air again. Right. And if I remember right, weren't you like Antarctica or someplace crazy cold or something like that? Or That was a few years ago. Okay. I was, it was just, what, two or three years ago, I was up in the Arctic Circle That's, yeah, um, yeah. In, in Finland on the border of uh, Finland and Norway and I was taking part in a game jam for the Sami indigenous people there. Hmm. And it was just a, an amazing experience. I'll never forget it. It was, it was, uh, that was the furthest North I'd ever, ever been. It was also the coldest I'd ever been <laughs> in, which was, it was minus 38 Celsius. Wow. Um, North face, which, bring the jackets. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and it was also the first time I got to see the Northern lights, which was just phenomenal. Ah, that's cool. Yeah. To, to be that close to the source. I, I've seen them in Wisconsin and they don't, quite have the same effect so it's <laughs> to be there that, that that's great um can you share about your current role and kind of like like what you're doing now or what you've been doing yeah so there's basically three things that i do um the first and foremost the kind of my day job is is the executive director of the global game gm so i run the world's largest game creation event mm-hmm. Um, which is starting, you know, the um, January 27th. It's always in January. So this year, of course, we had to pivot to an online virtual format because right. normally it's all on site. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've, I think we've done that pretty well. And we're, you know, I think things are going to go well. Um, cool. So running the Global Game Jam, you know, raising sponsorships for it and kind of, you know, corralling the the vast array of volunteers we have around the world who help us run this event mm-hmm. um it's a real really fun thing to do because this this event is just an amazing experience and normally i would be somewhere in the world um during the global game jam like last year yeah. this time i was in israel in haifa at their game jam site huh. which was that was a great experience that was my first time in israel um, how, how, many then, con- uh, how many countries are involved? Just to, well, you know. so to give you a perspective of right. the size, so last year, so the Global Game Jam has been around for 13 years. Okay. Um, and last year in 2020 was a record-breaking year. So we had just under 49,000 people wow. at, at 934 physical sites in 118 countries. Damn. And Holy shit. In that, one we- in that one weekend, they produced over 9,600 games. <laughs> So it is an event of scale. Yeah. I I had no idea. I'm. (laughs) Yeah. So it's, it's been, it's been really cool. We don't expect record breaking numbers this year with the virtual format. Mm -hmm. Um, just be, just because that's the way it is, but we're, we're really happy with the level of engagement we're getting. The second thing that I do other than run the global game jam is I do culturalization consulting. So that's kind of where my background as a geographer comes in. Um, I've been doing that kind of work Mm -hmm. in the game industry for almost 28 years. And cool. so that's basically where I help game developers adapt their content for, you know, other markets. And it's not translation. It's not localization. I'm basically focused on all the other elements of the game, like history and character design and all that stuff. Um, and then the mm-hmm. third thing I do a lot of is a lot of speaking at events. I do a ton of public speaking, uh, something I love to do. Um, so that's normally what drives the travel 
Um, But, you know, last year I thought with the lack of the actual travel that I would probably be speaking less, but I actually ended up speaking far more than I did the previous few years Mm. just because it was, you know, it was easier. (laughs) Right. How did you get started with uh, the game industry and the global game jam and all that stuff? Well, the game industry for me, I mean, it's one of those things where I've, I've always been a gamer. I mean, like most people, you know, you had, you start with card games and board games and all that kind of stuff with your family. Mm -hmm. And I was fortunate enough to grow up in the era of the arcades. So my first game Uh, was Pong. Right. Um, because I'm old enough to remember that. I'm, I'm and, the same age, you know, I, so I'm with you. There we go. Yeah. 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 And I was in high school in the early 80s. So, uh, you know, without social networks and cell phones, right. what did you our go to the arcade? Was, yeah. Right. Was the arcade. Yeah. Totally. That was that's was the center of our social life. Right. Um, and I loved it. You know, and I, I Atari Star Wars was my best arcade game. Um mm-hmm. Uh, is the one I was most proficient at. So I always enjoyed games, but I never really aspired to work in the industry. I didn't really even consider that because my original aspiration, to be quite honest, was to be was to be an astronaut. Cool. And uh, because I remember watching the moon landing on my grandma's black and white TV when I was four years old yeah. in 1969. I remember that. Yeah. And uh, you know that really was a huge influence on me. But um, after doing a year of aerospace engineering, um, in I, which I, it, the calculus is just not my thing. So yeah, that's I, heavy duty. <laughs> it is. So I quickly shifted to industrial design instead because I did come from an art, artistic background. Mm-hmm. And what I, I said, well, if I can't, if I'm not going to be an astronaut, what I really want to do is be a conceptual artist for Lucasfilm because I want to work on Star Wars really bad. <laughs> I you know, I, I found out that most of the artists at the time at Lucasfilm, their background was in industrial design. Mm-hmm. That's how you get that really cool like storyboard art style. Yeah. And so I did that and I did improve my style quite a bit. But then after a couple of years of that, I just started like, I got a little bit disenfranchised with the program I was at. Um, I didn't, I looked like it was going to take a lot longer Uh than I was expecting. And so I, I was already planning to minor in geography just because I love the subject. I love travel. I love culture. I love maps. I love all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And so I just, on a whim, actually, just said, why don't I just major in it and see what happens? And if I also, you know, learn cartography, I can use all my artistic background in cartography. Right. So it wasn't necessarily a waste of time. Mm-hmm. Overlap. Um, yeah. yeah. So I did that pivot and I did really well in the classes and I kind of felt like this is it. I, f- I found my thing. <laughs> and uh, I worked for a year as a cartographer after I got finished my undergraduate work. And I, then I, I kind of was thinking, you know, I still, I don't think I was done with my intellectual inquiry. So that's what, you know, took me to grad school. It's also what took me from Southern California to Seattle, to the University of Washington. And yeah. because at the time, the uh, Tom Furness, who's considered like the grandfather of VR, mm-hmm. he came out of the Air Force. He's the one who invented heads-up displays and in, in the very earliest virtual world oh, technology right. yeah, yeah. for the Air Force. Mm-hmm. Um, he had just retired and had, was setting up the Human Interface Technology Lab at the University of Washington, right as I was there in 1989. Okay. And I just literally stumbled across them setting up their lab, and I just happened to ask them what's going on, and they <laughs> they were very welcoming. They said, oh, yeah, we're setting up this VR lab. Right. You want to check, check it out? out. Right. And as a result of that, I ended up doing my master's thesis about using virtual worlds technology for cartography. 
um, and this is way back in 1991. Okay. So I, I you know, I, I yeah, I've tried the tech that was like uh, target boards and tip software. Was it was that back around then? Or? Yeah, 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 it was all of that stuff. I mean, you know, back when it the the headgear was just nothing but like aluminum frames and wires hanging everywhere. <laughs> yeah. And you know, the tech was really slow. The refresh rates were horrible. Um, Very crude, but, but yeah, it was, it was, yeah. it was a beginning of it. It was a genesis. It was a beginning. So, you know, so then I started my PhD work in which I was going to pursue that same line of inquiry. And that's when uh, our department got a call from Microsoft mm. and they were basically looking for a cartographer to work on a card encyclopedia. Oh yeah. And, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. So this is way back in like the summer of 1991, right after I fi finished my master's degree, mm -hmm. myself and another individual, we went over there and we both applied for this one job and he ended up getting it because he's a programmer and I'm, I'm not, I'm not a programmer. Mm -hmm. um, I'm more of a designer type of person. So but he got the job, but then like immediately after he started in early 92, um, he called me up and said, I need your help because we had to create like about 400 maps for the original Encarta. And uh, mm. we had about three or four months to do it. <laughs> so um, Gates is going to be mad so, if we miss that deadline. So we got to get going. Yeah, exactly. So me being, you know, uh, fairly newlywed at that point and also a starving grad student, the money was really good. So I'm like, yeah, I'm going to do this. I'm going to mm -hmm. do this contract work and I'm still going to, you know, do my PhD and all that stuff. And after my contract was up, after about six months, we accomplished what we set out to do. They renewed it right away and said, well, we need you to work on this over here. We need you to work on that over there. Mm. And I basically ended up becoming the cartography lead on Encarta. And then I also, and then eventually after three years, they offered me a full-time position, which I took um, in this role called geopolitical specialist. And so my wow. job um, at the time, there was a business unit within Microsoft called the Geography Business Unit that was focused all on the mapping products like MapPoint, Streets and Trips, yeah. Encarta World Atlas, right. I remember those. all of that stuff. Yeah. So, so my job was basically to make sure they didn't get into trouble by showing the geography incorrectly. Like, you know, if you're going to send the map to India, you have to show the northern area of Kashmir as Indian territory, even though it's disputed between Pakistan and China mm. and India. But you have to show it the way India wants it. Otherwise, your product doesn't sell in India. <laughs> and, wow. and so there's all kinds of little things like that all over the world. Um, and that's just pertaining to maps. Mm -hmm. And so that was my job was to watch that kind of thing and also check for geopolitical accuracy, which all completely aligned with my academic background. Um, yeah. As I was in that role, people within the company started to find out that was there was an actual geographer and cartographer in the company. <laughs> and so I would start getting these queries like out of the blue, right. like from the office team, like, hey, is this flag correct? Or, you know, is this gesture okay to use? Uh, um, and the very first game project I worked on, this, this is way back when, well, I did a little bit of advising on flight sim, um, but the very yeah. first one I did was a PC game that was being, that was in development, which was supposed to be like this very gritty, realistic war game. And they wanted to take place in the real world. And so they approached me and said, can you tell us where you think a war is likely to break out in the next five to 10 years. Wow. You know, a real war. Okay. And they gave me specific criteria. Like we, it has to involve us and Russian hardware. It has to involve a body of salt water and you know, down the list it went. Huh. <laughs> so <laughs> I came back to them about a week later with a few suggestions. And the one that they ran with is the one where I said, there's, there's likely to be a conflict in the Caucasus region 
you know, between uh, Russia and Georgia and Chechnya and that whole area. Right, right. And and so so they ran with it. Unfortunately, that project never they never saw the light of day. They eventually like shelved it. Mm-hmm. But then like I think it was two or three years later, Russia actually rolled their tanks into Georgia. Right. And a not a, a full out war started, but it was it was quite a conflict for a while. Mm-hmm. So that's one of those scenarios where it sucks to be right. <laughs> <laughs> but damn. But it was also that kind of light bulb moment where I I thought that wow, my skill set and my background can actually help with games mm-hmm. and help with game development. Well, after that team reached out to me, that's when I started having other teams like the Age of Empires team, which was uh, exactly which was, that makes sense. Yeah, you know, right. working on the first Age of Empires and, and other projects came to me mm-hmm. for advice. And so that just kind of grew and grew as sort of an informal thing I was doing. And then finally, after Microsoft made this huge faux pas in South Korea that started with Encarta World Atlas, but it finished with the first Age of Empires that came out in 1997. Okay. It caused such an uproar with the Korean government that the government was was almost to the point of just shutting down Microsoft in the country. Wow. And I don't mean just the game and the Atlas. Like I mean everything? Windows and Office because <laughs> they were so pissed off. So um, that's high stakes. That's the kind of thing where you, you know, you end up finding yourself talking to Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer about these things and explaining to them. Developers, 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 (laughs) fix this. (laughs) So it was because of that incident, though, it gave me the idea that Microsoft needed an internal team to coordinate this kind of knowledge, which nobody was tracking Mm -hmm. at all. And of course, why did that happen? Well, the Encarta team sits on one side of the company and Age of Empires done a complete other side right. well technically age of empires was you know being developed in at ensemble in dallas right so mm-hmm. they they those teams have no reason to talk to each other they have no reason to coordinate so somebody but but the the action of one team directly impacted the the release of another team's product and so that's where i'm like somebody has to be tracking this stuff somebody has to yeah. make sure that we don't run into these problems so I proposed this uh, this team that I called geopolitical strategy, and it took me about five tries over seven months to pitch this to different VPs within the company. Mm-hmm. And it was the last one, the fifth VP, who was <laughs> Paul Moritz, who was he was from South Africa, uh-huh. whereas all the other VPs I talked to were from the U.S. Right. Well, Paul, he got it immediately. So he like he just like it took five minutes and he said, let's do this. Of course. Right. Yeah. One of those yeah. <laughs> so in that, so basically once I created that team, that meant that all Microsoft products across all locales had to essentially go through this process of being checked for cultural and geopolitical sensitivity. And that included every game. Hmm. So that's when I ended up working on pretty much every game title during my time at Microsoft, all the halos and fables and age of empires and all the other stuff. And that's when I found my true calling. That's when like doing this kind of work, this culturalization work on games is like absolute heaven for me. Mm -hmm. And so when I decided to leave the company in 2005 and create my consulting company, uh, Geography, that was my focus. I said, that's what I want to do for the rest of my life. I want to do this kind of work on games. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's basically where it's been ever since. So So that's basically professional consulting side of things. Yeah, that's no, that's fascinating. And, and I, um, I worked for Blue Byte Software with um, mm-hmm. the Settlers, right? So there, it was funny. We would be at E3s and kind of looking at each other and be like, you, "Age of Empires," and we, we've got the Settlers, and it, there was kind of like that rivalry between the yes, th- those kind of games of the building and exploring and um, mm-hmm. the, the whole thing. And yeah, Age of Empires is you know fantastic. 
and that basically I had gotten to that point where I felt that unless they let me create this team, I was probably going to leave the company because mm-hmm. I felt that my utility within the company was at least within the function that I originally was defined was pretty limited. And, you know, being in a, in a high tech company, being a social scientist in a high tech company, um, you often get labeled as someone with quote soft skills. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're not as highly valued, especially when it comes to promotions oh, and raises and all that, right, yeah. you know, not, not that that's what drives me. I mean, I'm driven by the subject matter and I'm driven by my interest in it, but still, you know, you kind of, you, the message is clear. It's like, you're not as valuable as somebody else in the company, because you're not a programmer, you're not a technical person. Yeah, you're not doing this stuff for DirectX, so, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, even though I was making decisions that was saving the company literally millions and millions of dollars in different markets because we didn't make a huge mistake, you know, and cause problems with local government, but that didn't seem to count. I, I see what you're saying, so. Um, yeah. Yeah, that, that's that's frustrating. You know, but even to this day, I, I mean, about, I would say about 25% of the work that I do is not games related because I still do um, consulting in on cartography, um, on geopolitics, and some other kind of you know real world issues okay. for several clients. In like one of the first big clients I had after I left Microsoft was actually Google because they had heard what I hmm. did at Microsoft creating this geopolitical team, and they basically wanted me to come on board, you know, as a consultant and help them do the same thing because. The, at the time, Google Maps and Google Earth was getting a lot of traction as being like the go-to mapping application, whereas Microsoft a few years earlier was the go-to. Yeah. Well, now it was all Google, and they were getting that same uncomfortable attention from governments and consumers uh-huh. about the way things were depicted in their maps. And frankly, Google had no clue what to do. <laughs> you know, and um, so I, I I worked with them for six years to perfect what we call domain tailoring, so that when you go to different internet domains, it essentially offers up what the local requirement is. Hmm. And, you know, people could say, well, that sounds like a great propaganda engine. Well, frankly, from a cartographic perspective, it is because <laughs> cartography has always been about representing who is asking the map to be made. You know, it's, it's, uh, you right. know, cartography has always had a certain level of bias in it since the beginning of beginning of human history. Right. So um, the fact that we tend to ascribe ground truth reality to those maps is a fault of ours as the, you know, of, as those who perceive the maps. Mm-hmm. So after I, one of the things I wanted to do after I left Microsoft in 2005 was to get, you know, obviously get better connected with the game industry. I mean, I had already been attending, you know, E3 and GDC and events like that while I was still at Microsoft. Yeah. But now that I was kind of, uh, you know, off on my own, starting my own business, I really had to start to learn to connect and network and all those good things. I mm-hmm. And I didn't have the Microsoft name to back me up, you know. Right, right, um, yeah. Where that that opened a lot of doors for me at places like E3, where I could like go into a booth and say, "Yeah, I'm from Microsoft. Can I see your your secret trailer?" Like, "Oh yeah, come on in." Mm-hmm. Um, that didn't happen <laughs> after yeah, yeah, I left. Right. So, that cachet wasn't there. Yeah. So I joined the International Game Developers Association, and mm-hmm. I, after a couple of years of being a part of it, because I had heard that that was a good way to connect with other people in the industry. I eventually created the localization special interest group in the IGDA because as I would attend events, I usually would hang out with the localization people, you know, the translator people, because they were sort of the closest to me in terms of the work that I did. And all I did was hear a lot of them complain about how nobody cares about localization and (laughs) everyone, you know, no one cares about us. They always forget about us. They, they, you know, they, they forget to bring us in and then we have to scramble and finish 
finish really quickly. Rush, rush, rush. I hate bitching and moaning. I don't like it. So I'm like, you know what? Why don't we do something about this? Why don't we educate game developers on what localization is and help them understand what it is we do? Mm -hmm. And so that's why I created the localization SIG because I basically wanted to have a platform where local people could come together, discuss their craft, but also help, you know, how do we figure out how to educate non-localization people about what we do? And so we eventually ended up running like the localization summit for GDC and did a whole bunch of other great things um, that I thought were pretty effective. But I also got involved with running the IGD Seattle chapter because it kind of had fallen into some bit of a disarray back at that time. And so I, I essentially helped run that. I guess that was enough for the, uh, the, the main IGD organization took notice. And so they approached me in 2012 about becoming their executive director. So running the global organization Hmm. and, um, I was a little reluctant at first because I'm like, no, I'm, you know, I'm busy. I'm trying to, I'm trying to do this consulting work that I love and do all that kind of stuff. But, you know, the more I thought about it, I was kind of entering a phase of my career where I'd already at that point been working with game developers for at least 10 years. Mm -hmm. And I saw firsthand the problems with working editions, um, the lack of inclusion, um, a lot of different problems on the game industry side. And it was really starting again to piss me off. (laughs) So, you know, and I guess you could say, you know, there's a reason, there's a reason why some, I cosplay as Thor because it's sort of that rage factor where it's like, I'm not going to rage for the sake of rage. I'm going to rage because it's a sense of injustice. Something has to be done. Right. And I'm willing to be the person to at least make a start at it. And hopefully others will help. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I took on the job of running the International Game Developers Association and ended up doing that for five years. Um, I did that during a really tumultuous time in the industry during Gamergate. Oh, Um, right. Yeah. So for at least two years, I was one of the primary targets of theirs uh, with death threats and harassment and everything, mainly because... Yeah. So I was in touch with the FBI on a regular basis to check in with them and uh, kind of see what can we do about this? Have you found out who these people are? All that kind of stuff. Holy shit. That's crazy. Yeah, it was crazy, especially because it was mainly because of two things. One, because I'm a visible woman in a leadership role in the game industry. Mm -hmm. And two, because I actually chose to speak out against them. And, and wow. denounce the behavior when, unfortunately, a lot of the CEOs in our industry at that time were were completely silent hmm. yeah, on the issue. Bullshit. Yeah, it was yeah. it it was bullshit. And I I would contact the these C level people and say, hey, you got to do something. This is the t- this is your moment. Right. This is the right. time. Here's your, your chance to shine. Get your head out of your a. Yeah. And do something. Right. And they didn't. Um, uh, most of them didn't. I mean, you know, some there were some exceptions like Mike Morheim of Blizzard. He actually opened BlizzCon in 2014 mm-hmm. with a statement. Um, he didn't say Gamergate by name, but he did denounce what they were doing. And I thought that was a great thing for him to do. Yeah. And uh, I'm glad I got the chance to thank him to his face at, at some uh, later conference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was unfortunate, but you know that was just part of the job at the time. Wow. And you know, really, it was it was um, I was of course doing all my consulting work on the side while I was running the IGDA. Mm-hmm. But it was important to me to speak out and to and to try and make a difference and to try and basically fight for a better life for game developers um, because I think they deserve it. Yeah. And so, you know, after I left that role in 2017, I still 
was, you know, basically now I'm like a freelance advocate. Um, so now I had no constraints. I didn't have to worry about PR and all that stuff. Now I could say anything I wanted mm -hmm. about the industry. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. And I did. And I did. So I guess that kind of amped up my reputation for being pretty vocal. Um, I also decided to do some things like create the 50 over 50 list. Yes. Um, Thank you for putting them on that list. That was very nice. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, because we see these 30 under 30 lists, which I think are great, mm -hmm. and they highlight this upcoming talent. And I know a lot of people who show up on those lists. But mm -hmm. hey, what about all these fantastic veterans who are still working in the industry and have been for, you know, 10 or 20 years? Right. Um, you know, there's, they're worth highlighting as well. And um, so I felt that there, there needed to be a platform for that. So mm -hmm. um, became a board member for takethis.org, which focuses on mental health in the game industry, because um, yeah, it's a big one. It is. I mean, in, in a lot of my discussions with developers around the world, when I ran the IGDA and since it was, ultimately, it was the mental health impact, which was the biggest problem from all of these other issues that we were seeing. And so, um, so I wanted to support Take This as Mission. So I'm still on the board. Um, I'm also That's a patron great. of an effort called uh, Safe in Our World, which started in the UK last year. Mm -hmm. The advocacy work to me is really important because I think it's we we all need to have a voice. We all need to stand up and speak out for things that you know that we feel strongly about. And it's that fear of speaking out which you know holds a lot of us back. And as yeah. as someone like in my case, uh, you know Myers Briggs INTP introvert. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean I've I've learned to. Uh, you know, I, I've I've learned to overcome that, and I can fake extroversion really well now. And yeah, uh, I I'm fake it you. because I, the main reason I do it is because I feel it's it's the only way you can do advocacy. It's the only way you can get some things done. Is you have to put yourself in a zone of certain public exposure, mm -hmm. um, or else nothing's going to get done. That's that's a lot of stuff. That um, <laughs> thank you, uh, you know, thank you for your service with all those different projects. So, what do you wish you had known when you started? Like, you know, looking back, I mean, you've done a lot of stuff. I wish I had taken the time earlier, especially when it was my chance to come into the game industry. Um, you know, I mean, I think everybody in hindsight, there's a lot of lessons we could learn. Yeah. But I think for me, it's, it's would have been two things. One would have been taking a bit more time to really understand the game industry, and and I by that I mean have a better understanding of the breadth of it. You know, don't just talk to like the core creative people, also talk to the marketing people and the legal people mm. and all the other people involved because it's not just the core creative team. Yeah. There's a massive network of people totally. who are part of the process of bringing a game to a successful, you know, place in the world. And so that I think just having that, you know, I did gain that understanding, but I think having that earlier would have really helped me with my perspective. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I really wish I would have done, especially by the time I became self-employed is, is understand how to run a business. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, and, LLCs and, that, and, and uh, mint or oh, yeah. quicken or yeah, all of that stuff, you know, and I, I thought, well, what's a big deal. I know so, so many people who've become self-employed, it's, it can't be that hard. Mm -hmm. There, it's not just about the logistics of filing paperwork and all that. What it really was about is how do you market yourself? How do yeah. you put yourself out there? How do you how do you make an argument that's that people are going to listen to or, or you know get them to pay attention to anything that you're saying? Right. And you know, I mean, all of those aspects of it, I had no clue. Mm -hmm. And I think com that combined with being an introvert and also realizing that when you become self-employed, there's only one person that's going to be 
helping you out and that's you, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, I mean, in terms of like marketing yourself, I mean, sure, you can have other people around you who are going to support you. And I don't mean just your parents, yeah. you know, you, you really have to find that courage to put yourself out there and, and to understand, you know, what's the message you're trying to put out? What do you, what do you actually do? And mm-hmm. so I, I, I admit, I mean, the first two or three years of being self-employed, I stumbled quite a bit. Um, I was, I was just damn lucky. I got a couple of contracts through some, through different contacts of mine. I mean, the Google one came about, but the very, very first contract I got as a self-employed person actually came through my parents. Wow. (laughs) You know, they came through contacts of my parents who had kind of just, you know, as they would go around talking to people say, yeah, you know, our daughter is doing this now. And like, oh, well, maybe I could, might be able to use her, her help. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, but it took me two or three years to really kind of solidify what's my message, what's my elevator pitch, yeah. you know, what am I really offering to people, especially because in my case, I, you know, I have such a weird job. <laughs> it, it's such a different kind of job. So it did take me a while to really kind of under, you know, figure out how am I supposed to pitch it. Yeah. But once I, once I did, then I got it. Then it's like, then I saw people's eyes kind of open up. Then I, then they kind of understood better what I'm doing. And then basically the contract started to roll. Yeah. You had to get your footing and kind of understand your angle and, and your, your mm-hmm. ability to add to companies. And then, um, then it's feast or famine, right? Cause there's nothing, nothing, yes. nothing. And then it's just like tsunami <laughs> Absolutely. Of, oof, coming at you. You're like, so what about advice to give someone who, who may be listening and like trying to get their first job in the industry? Well, first and foremost, it's, it's really important to be, to have some confidence in your skills so mm-hmm. I know that's a really easy thing for me to say, <laughs> um, especially when you're younger and you're starting out. It's like you have almost no confidence in your skills, right. yeah. <laughs> you know, and I mean that we all I think all of us have heard about the term imposter syndrome. I've given lectures uh, about imposter right. syndrome, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and it is pretty insidious because it affects every one of us. It, you know, it is mm-hmm. a challenging thing for us to deal with, but we have to understand that we have those skills. We've spent years honing those skills, whether or not we see those skills in us. There are people around you who do. There's people around you who yeah. understand what you're capable of doing. And I think one of the important things to do, of course, is networking. You have to network in order to get a job in the industry. And that's not just that's not only true of games, it's true of a lot of industries. But I think creative media is particularly true because you have to be able to show people what you're capable of doing. And it's not like some jobs, it's a matter of like, well, do you have some degree of experience? Do you have the right degrees? Like, you know, if you're going to be a lawyer or (laughs) or an accountant or something like that, it's like, it's kind of, it's a little more straightforward. But if you're going to be a conceptual artist on a game franchise, well, obviously there's portfolios, which is great, mm-hmm. you know, so you can show off your work. Yep. Or if you're a writer, you can show writing samples. If you're a programmer, you can show coding samples and things that you've done and worked on. Mm-hmm. Um, it gets harder when you get into other jobs like producer, like a lot of people yeah. who want to be a producer. The ability of a producer is basically to bring things on, bring things together and have the project done on time and under budget Mm -hmm. how do you prove you can do that (laughs) right yeah like here's my Um, here's my yeah my uh gantt chart or my uh agile uh breakdown so yeah yeah exactly so you know having having some of those things help you know the there's the the different certifications for program management and you know scrum Scrum training training, all that i I think a lot of those things can help someone's position in those kinds of jobs but ultimately you know I, i think what's really important is you have to find a mentor. 
Um, and that could just be someone you casually network with. Mm-hmm. It could be someone who you actually specifically reach out to and ask them to be your mentor. But the way I would do it is this. Think about the kinds of jobs in the game industry that you that you think you could do, or the ones, well, particularly the ones you want to do. Right. You know, see if you can find those people on LinkedIn or through other networks. Mm-hmm. But I think LinkedIn works really well for this. Yeah. If you find those people, or if you know people who know those people, see if you can connect with them in some way. And you don't go up to them asking for a job. You don't connect with them <laughs> asking them, hey, are there any opportunities? You want to look at my portfolio? Right, yeah, yeah. The best way to engage with people in the industry to start a networking relationship is to ask them questions about what they do. So when you find people hmm. who do a job that you would like to do, then ask them about their work. Because I can tell you right now, if you ask somebody for a job or even imply you're looking for a job, the chances of you getting a response are almost zero. Yeah. But if you ask somebody about them and you ask them about their work, or if you found out that they worked on a certain game title you like mm-hmm. or whatever it might be, yeah. ask them about their work. Because I can tell you right now, it's rare that somebody would not want to talk about themselves. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. <laughs> and I say that with all the love and affection of my colleagues. Uh-huh. I'm I'm just as guilty. If somebody were to email me and say, hey, Kate, I'm really, I really want to understand what you do for a living because it sounds kind of cool. I get messages like that quite often. And I will, I don't care who it is. I will take time, especially if they're a student, I will take I will make time yeah. to talk to students for sure because I it's just that's my commitment. Mm-hmm. I will find the time. I might have to tell them it may have to wait a month or two, but I will talk to you. Right. That's I think really important. Be inquisitive, be curious, ask questions Mm -hmm. because you're trying to understand the nature of their job, what it takes to do that job. And they could even, you know, enlighten you what kind of skills, like even the question you asked me, what would you, what would you have want to have known when you were getting into this job? What do you think you should have known? Those kinds of asking those people, those questions are fantastic insights for you if you're starting out Mm -hmm. um, on what you should do with your skill set. You know, maybe there's things you already know that they mentioned. Maybe there's things you have no clue about. Mm -hmm. And that could give you insight into things that you may want to fix or work on. Yeah. Um, Reaching out having those being inquisitive, you know, and if you can start that kind of conversation, that's when let it go for one or two cycles, assuming they respond to you. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, that's when you kind of sneak in and say, Hey, by the way, I've been working on this character and I'm kind of stuck. And I'm wondering if you'd give me some advice, do you mind looking at this image, you know, and, yeah, and so you, the rapport you, is there. Exactly. So I'm saying basically smooth your way into this, go slowly into this, or I should say, ease your way into this, mm-hmm. you know, don't just you know send somebody a, a link to your portfolio and say, Hey, please check my portfolio out. I'd love to get your feedback. Right. People aren't stupid. They know what you're going for. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, but I think if you, if you show that level of inquisitive that also shows them that you're actually thinking about all of the aspects of doing this kind of work, mm-hmm. you know, and which is, frankly, that's really important. You should understand all the aspects right. of doing that kind of work mm-hmm. uh, and what the challenges are and what the benefits are and all that kind of stuff. Because frankly, I know people who entered the game industry in a certain, you know, because they had a certain skill set. And after a few years of doing it, they found out this, I don't want to do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, right. This is, you know, this is just not my thing. And and some of them pivoted into a different function within the game industry. And some of them just pivoted completely out of the industry because right. they just, they just like, this is just not what I thought it was going to be. And it's just, I think I want, I, I want to do this other thing more. Yeah. And it's quality, not, not quantity. Start a dialogue, 
be curious, know something about that person. Don't just be like, I want to connect. I'm like, you know, who the hell are you, right? Like we connect and then you want to like, you know, leverage my connections to then mm -hmm. try and get it. It's kind of, it's not cool, right? Let no. build a rapport and, and be smart about it and be selective and be strategic about it. Not, not be shotgun blast, throw spaghetti at the wall and just right. barrage everybody. And then um, wonder why nobody replied. And then when, when we can eventually get back to events, um, I really highly recommend, you know, most every municipality has some kind of game developer meetup of some form. Yeah. Um, you know, it might take a while for some of these to, um, to come back, right. given the, the situation over the last year or so, but they will come back. Mm -hmm. Um, undoubtedly, we will have, you know, weekly events, monthly events, you know, game industry events, all of that stuff's going to come back eventually. Yeah. And I really recommend that people engage with those, you know, even if it's a 10 person meetup, the point is that you want to expose people to your skill set, let them know who you are, because just even that alone, that's where jobs come from, because, yeah. you know, it happens time and time again where you know you're the one who showed up at the meeting you're the one who sh was willing to show your portfolio or ask for feedback or seek a mentor mm -hmm. and people remember that because if a job opens up in their company you know if you were if you had that level of of kind of you know easy persistence they will say, oh, wait, you know what? I think I remember. Yeah, I think this person might be good for this right, role. I'm going right. to I'm going to call them up and see if they're if they want to do this, mm -hmm. because that is how most jobs happen in this industry. Right. It happens through networking. It does not happen through submitting your resume to a website. Hey, hope you're enjoying the show. If you are, please go to patreon.com backslash game dev advice. We'd love to see if you can support the show and help uh, new episodes keep coming out. That's patreon.com backslash game dev advice. Thanks. And those jobs tend to have a lot of people applying, right? So like what, yes. what distinguishes you from, you know, a thousand other people, right? What about advice for somebody like in the industry right now that, that are looking to advance their career, right? There are two years, four years, six years in. Part of it depends on where they ultimately see themselves, because I know that that's part of the challenge is that oftentimes we kind of dive into these roles um, because in the moment, that's what we're passionate about. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the we have to recognize that our interests change over time. They they can shift. And just being open to that reality, like I know people who, did, who are in leadership roles who decided they didn't want to be in a leadership role. Yeah. Um, a good example was one of my managers back in my Microsoft days, way back when, he was, I think, one of the original 50 employees of Microsoft. Right. So by the time, wow. you know, I was working for him as my manager, he had no need to be there. I mean, the stock had doubled in so many times. I mean, this guy could probably buy a small country yeah. and just, you know, would not even think twice. But I really admired his work ethic because he kept constantly refusing promotions. I mean, he could have been like a senior VP and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. He he stayed at the director level because at the director level, you still have a certain level of individual contribution right, um, to what's right. going on. I because see, as as they go, call it. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. So as you go above that level, now you're just like pure manager. And he didn't want that. Mm -hmm. You know, he's like, he loves having his fingers dirty with work. And I really respected that because I tend to feel the same way. That's that's more the way I am as well. Yeah. Because even when I was running my geopolitical team at Microsoft, I was 
doing the work on every as much as everybody else. I just had the extra burden of doing management. Mm. So some people want to move into a management role. Usually when you get people who are older, people who've been in the industry a while, the only direction upwards tends to yeah. be a management function of some kind. Mm. You know, like you're going to become the senior lead of the art department or, you know, the senior writer uh, or something CTO like that. Or um, something. Yeah, or even up to creative director or the C-level jobs. Mm-hmm. You know, and some people don't want to do that. And so part of it is is having a good rapport with your managers and with your management so they understand what your goals are mm. i think it's really important to be clear about those if you're clear if you have a clear vision of that yeah. there's nothing wrong with telling your manager you know what in 3 to 5 years this is where i see myself and of course we often get asked that during performance reviews yeah. but it's it's i think it's important to have some idea of where you want to go. Mm-hmm. You could always change it, of course, at any time, but I think it's helpful to have that idea. And if you just don't know at all, then that might be a good sign. You might want to talk to, you know, find someone who could be a good mentor to you on your, where you are in your career right now yeah. uh, and maybe figure out, you know, where maybe you want to go from here. Mm-hmm. And it, it could be a completely different job altogether. It could be a complete shift or pivot, or it could just be, yeah, I, I guess I do want to be a, I want to be a leader. You know, we, we see a lot of people, for example, who work in large studios and publishers, and then they get to a point where they spin off and they take maybe a few of their colleagues with them and they create their own game studio. Yeah. And I think that's totally natural in, in creative media because ultimately we're all creative types and, most creative types ultimately want autonomy on what they're creating. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, or they just have this really cool idea and they were able to get some investment dollars thrown at it and they want to try it out and see where yeah, it, goes. it goes. The industry, thankfully, in many ways is evolving, right? Because that was always mm-hmm. how it used to be. Like, well, if, if you want to advance, you have one and one path only, which is to go into management, right? So, yes. so then people that were very good at art or design or, or engineering, it's like, well, if, if you want the bucks, you got to go to the status <laughs> meetings and do your TPS reports, you know, and it's like, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, and some people were okay with that, maybe, but, but then other people were like, no, I'm miserable. Like, like I want to write right. code. I want to make art. So companies have more recently have gotten better about, you know, a parallel path. If you're an individual contributor mm-hmm. and, you know, I, I know somebody at a game studio that's like, the title's like distinguished engineer, right? So it is right. super high level, but it's, it's an, it still has that individual contributor level where it's, it's not just paperwork and management. They're operating at a very, very high level as an engineer and they're not forced into the bucket of, if you want to move up, you got to do the paperwork and be in management. And and again, some people are fine with that. Like they love to build teams and mentor and grow and, you know, more power to them. We always need those people, but you want to have options. You don't want to feel like you're forced into that. If you just want to write low level C code that's talking to the metal and makes shit run at 60 (laughs) FPS, like let them do that. Don't force them to go to status meetings. There's that old saying that, you know, you don't necessarily leave a job, you leave a manager. (laughs) And I know that's absolutely been true in my career history. Um, I mean, when I left Microsoft in 2005, I left for various reasons, but one of the reasons I left was because I'd gotten to a point with my manager at the time where I just couldn't take it anymore. I'm like, this kind of level of, (laughs) I'll just be nice. I'll say this kind of management was just 
I'm like, I had already been there for 13 years. I'm like, why am I putting up with this? Micromanaging or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah it yeah. just, you know, just the behavior. Well, part of it was like, for example, the person I was reporting to believed that everyone's aspirations should be the same as hers, which is to be a VP at Microsoft. Uh, and if you didn't want to be a VP at Microsoft, she just could not comprehend right. why you wouldn't want that. One size fits all. Why are you not wanting to be that? Right. So in the last performance I had with my, my former manager, she recommended to me, she said, you know, you've been in the same kind of job, this, you know, geopolitical job ever since you came to Microsoft. And I think it'd be really you know worthwhile if you would go be like a program manager in the Excel team <laughs> or, you know, go, do something like radically different because you need that breadth of experience within the company if you want to, you know, get promoted. I'm like, wait a minute. Uh, I don't want to do that. Let's step back here. Wait a minute. I came into this company as a geographer with a background in geopolitics. I created a, the, a unique team this company has never seen before. Yeah. I've been running this team for seven years. I've saved this company millions of dollars by avoiding all kinds of horrible mistakes. Right. And this is what I do. This right. is what I'm best at. And, and people have recognized that even up to the, uh, even all the way up to Bill Gates. Mm -hmm. And you are telling me I should be a program manager in Excel. <laughs> <laughs> I was Shoot like, me. I was, I was so dumbfounded. I'm just like, you have no, you just right. have no clue. Yeah. Uh, and I told her, I said, I came into this company as a geographer to help the company. I'm leaving this company as a geographer who has helped the company. And that's it. Yeah, that's great. So, you know, and I think that kind of goes back. I mean, that's a little antagonistic in that example, but it goes back to my point where being really clear with your manager, mm -hmm. you know, and, and if you're working for somebody who's just untenable, then I mean, it might that too you know even if you love your job you know as i did at microsoft i mean i of course i loved it i created that job yeah. you might find yourself in a position where it's like it's time to move on mm -hmm. so what's been one of your favorite games or projects to work on there's a lot of projects i've worked on that i'm very proud to have been associated with like the halo games i mean i'm still a huge halo geek mm -hmm. honestly if when i want to relax the number one thing you will find me doing is firing up the master chief collection hmm. and playing halo multiplayer um, okay. I still play it to this day and that game's going to turn 20 years old this year. Yeah. Which is crazy. I, I was there for the launch party. I, I remember like standing in line. It was a big party yeah. in Chicago and it was like, that's right. First person yeah. shooters to the console. <laughs> like you can't do that. You need a mouse and a keyboard. <laughs> that Alex Seropian, he's crazy. What's he talking about? <laughs> um, and there you go. Boom. It happened. Yeah. yeah. So that was, I mean, projects like that, obviously the like age of empires has been a really fun series yeah, to work right. on. Cause it just, it it has all the history and geography part of it. Um, totally. I was really happy over the last couple of years, I was brought back to help with the definitive edition of age three. And I'm currently cool. helping with age of empires four. Hmm. So those have been really fun to work on, but I think, you know, the, probably the, one of the biggest highlights for me has been, um, you know, having Bioware as a client. Hmm. So I picked them up as a client many years ago um, because I'd worked on Jade empire for them when I was still at Microsoft and then after I left, Bioware reached out to me directly and said, we still want your help on wow. doing this culturalization work. And so I've been working on every Bioware game ever since. And, but the Damn. real highlight for me goes back to my original goal way back when was wanting to work on something Star Wars. Yeah. So I did get to work on Star Wars The Old Republic for four years. Wow. 
And so that, I look back on that for all kinds of reasons. It was a great game to work on. It was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. It was challenging. Um, but let's face it. I mean, it's, a, <laughs> you know, a childhood dream come true. Right. I got to work on something Star Wars. Right. So, you know, as they say in those movies, the circle was now complete. Right, full circle. Yeah. Um, yeah. Circle's not complete. So, yeah. so that, was, that was a real highlight for me because it was just a joy. It was really a joy to work on something that you love so much like that. Mm-hmm. What are you curious about the industry right now? Yeah, well, there's a lot of things right now. I mean, I, you know, there's as much as I've talked about diversity and inclusion in this industry and how important it is, um, I think we're starting to see better progress on those fronts. Mm -hmm. I think we still have a long way to go. Um, You know, when we still only have on average about 20% of the industry is women. Um, And, and, you know, the, so I think we have a lot of, a lot of effort to go there. But I do think, honestly, that more and more companies are getting the message. I think it's a combination of having gone through the Gamergate episode in the industry, yeah. also the Me Too issues in Hollywood and beyond, right, right, um, yeah. and you know this kind of the slew of social issues that we've seen. Mm-hmm. Um, they have been positively influencing companies. You know the Black Lives Matter movement as well. Just last year, mm-hmm. I think even though that's been ongoing for years, I think it reached that inflection point last year of getting companies to finally understand that this is important representation really fucking matters you know and so i it's unfortunate it has to go through those inflection points but sometimes that's the nature of history we have we have to go through a certain level of conflict in order to reach some better you know state of understanding points and all that kind of stuff Yeah. yeah so i i think there are more positive things happening on those fronts um the bigger challenge I still see is, you know, like one of the things I've spoken out a lot about in this industry is about unionization, organized mm. labor. You know, when I left the IGDA in 2017, I was kind of hell bent on creating a union and or creating some form of leverage for game developers, such as a, a legal defense fund for game developers, yeah. which is still kind of a pr- project on my back burner, to be honest. But I, I, one thing that was very, very clear to me be, be, that I learned during those years was not only the importance of mental health among game developers, mm-hmm. but also the the absolute need for game developers to have some form of leverage against their employer, yeah. because there was just too much nasty shit happening across different companies. Yeah. And even though I know that there are companies that are trying really hard to do better, and I know they're doing better, mm-hmm. not universally, but there are a lot of companies who really earnestly are trying to do better. Yeah. Um, there are some, like we saw the whole debacle with Ubisoft last year yeah. with their whole Oof. sexism issues right. um, in Riot the year before that. Yeah. You know, these things are still lingering and these things are still kind of festering out there. Mm-hmm. And I feel it's important that developers have some form of leverage so that if they speak out against these issues, they're not going to get instantly fired. Right. Or um, fall in deaf ears be- and HR just swoops in on the yeah. rug, right? I mean, that's exactly that's totally what you happens. know. So, when people often ask me, do you believe in unions? And I say, well, I come from a family where my parents were public school teachers. So yes, mm-hmm. right. <laughs> but at the same time, um, I feel that's not the only solution. I think there's a variety of solutions because I, I honestly don't think unions might be the ideal solution for every company, mm-hmm. but I do think there needs to be a form of leverage, whether it's a union, whether it's a legal defense fund or something that developers can rely on to help them have that leverage against their employer. You know, we've seen efforts along that line 
headline over the last two or three years that to me are more promising. Um, mm -hmm. Whether, you know, the bigger issue, of course, we, we've seen it in other countries already, but the big question is, will that happen in the United States? And, you know, given that just recently Google, I believe it was with Google or was it Amazon where they're going to create a union? Um, oh, I think, I think it, was it was Google. Google. Yeah, yeah, it was Google. Yeah, it was yeah, Google. A couple weeks ago. Yeah, right. so the fact that that's happening at a big tech company like that, mm -hmm. that to me is progress, you know? So we'll we'll see. We'll see what happens. We'll see if that trickles over to the game industry and if that uh, kind of fires up people or not. But yeah. um, but that's that's something I'm watching closely because I think it's a very important issue. And I, I think it's more than about time for the industry to recognize that the people working on these games, they are your they are your assets. They are your resource. You know, the talent that right. is creating these games are really where the value of the company lies. It's not in the intellectual property. Mm -hmm. That's in my opinion. Yeah. And, and they take advantage of it too, right? Because it, it is just like, if you don't want to do it, I got 10 more people behind you. Yes. I'll just grind you out and find somebody else. I completely agree. And, you know, they, and they use that argument of, of, uh, they use people's passion against them. Yeah. Because, you know, all these these young developers wanting to work in the game industry, of which there are many of them, um, mm -hmm. you know, they are, they just fervently desire to work on a game and work in this industry, which is great. You should have that desire and passion, yeah. but you can't let it be used against you, mm -hmm. you know, where basically they use that passion to, to have you accept ridiculous working conditions or ridiculous, you know, employment you know contracts and things like that yeah. just because you know they're like well hey if you don't want to do it i can find 10 other people yep. who, who will die to be in your position right now yeah. and that's just that's just insidious i mean come yeah. on i mean yeah. to me that's just evil yeah i was gonna say evil too you're right it's like yeah it's just <laughs> you're taking advantage of people and and it is uh it's not the way to be a good human really want this industry to be better mm -hmm. you know i i think we can be a better example of, of how you treat your talent, yeah, you know, so I, I, I want to see us be better, which is really part of what drives my advocacy efforts in this industry. Mm -hmm. What about opportunities? Like, you know, what are things you're excited about right now? For me, I be, I think there's a, there's several things. I mean, uh, it's one of the things I've been often saying is that to me, one of the reasons I love games so much and why I've decided to stick around this medium, even though with my background, I could work in all kinds of industries probably, um, the reason I love games so much is to me, they represent the current evolution of human narrative. Um, yeah. So when we we look back across all the forms of media that have existed since the beginning of human civilization, you know, games are currently at that nexus point of being where all these, the you know, the combination of narrative and technology and communication. So, you know, how do we transmit stories from one generation to another mm. is really what it comes down to. Mm. You know, it used to be oral histories, then it had artwork, then we had writing, and then we had, you know, all these other mediums. And of course, in the last 200 years, a lot of technology-based mediums like printing and radio and television yeah. and all this stuff. Well, games to me are now where we are this interactive form of media, which is wholly unique compared to other forms that have come before us. And we're mm -hmm. in that position of, frankly, I think responsibility of figuring out how do, how do we make this work? And I mean, we already have over the last few decades, a lot of fantastic examples of that because we are so technology dependent to the point where it's unlike some of the other industries, you know, like for example, we often get compared to the film industry a lot and yeah. there are a lot of similarities, yeah. but then if you think about the film industry, their format and technology has not changed at all in a hundred <laughs> years because at, at its core, the film industry is about 
an audience viewing on a screen. Right. You know, and now it used to be before the pandemic, it was right. you know collectively in a room together watching this on a flat screen. Yeah. And now we're all you know doing it via streaming, which is a you know, it is a different experience, but nonetheless, mm-hmm. it is still viewing a narrative yeah. on a two D two-dimensional right. screen. Yeah, it's a passive medium. So that really hasn't changed in a hundred years, whereas with games, all it takes is something like the invention of a touch screen. And it yeah. radically changes right. how our games are played. It radically opens up all kinds of new avenues for interaction that we just never had before. Um, you know, that's currently with all the talk about VR and AR. And mm. I know we've been up and down on that roller coaster <laughs> over the last few years. Yeah. And you know, like I said, it goes all the way back to my thesis in 1991 um, when there was a huge wave of hype over VR way back then, which died out quickly. Mm-hmm. Like many people, I think it has tremendous amount of promise. But there is there are so so many open-ended questions about how do you play a game in a VR space? What does it mean? Um, For example, you have in in a traditional like AAA title, you've got narrative designers and you have environmental artists. Mm -hmm. And so they, you know, they often work off one another. You know, the environmental artist is creating the environments that the narrative requires for the, the plot to take place. Well, what we're finding in like VR, for example, is that to be an environmental artist in VR is you have to also understand narrative. And if you're going to be a narrative designer in VR, you also have to understand environmental design. So it's uh, it's almost like a new kind of job. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's like an environmental narrative designer <laughs> or something. Right. Because that, um, that's part of the set. That's part of the yeah, storyline and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Because the experience of space in VR is so different than it is in a traditional 2D game played on a console or whatever. Yeah. And it's that level of, I mean, we've seen already some really good examples of games that are in VR, but a lot of them, in my view, tend to just emulate the traditional AAA yeah. kind of style kind of because right it, now it's the same experience but it's a different medium yeah so so what they're achieving they're achieving a certain level of immersion you couldn't get with a traditional game mm-hmm. which is really cool and there's some fantastic experiences i've done but it's not different it's not that much different it's just more immersion so you know but it's not necessarily a different gaming experience Mm -hmm. and i think that's why i think on for those technologies we're standing on the frontier kind of wondering what's next how do we actually use this and frankly i think that's one of the reasons why vr has had consumer problems you know sticking even though we have fantastic devices out there now like the oculus quest um which makes it super consumer friendly Mm -hmm. but we don't have the content yeah. I right. mean, we, well, we do have a lot of content, but I'm saying the content is still not to that point that is making it like everybody's clamoring right. for yeah, this yeah, thing. Yeah, right, right. It's that you, you got to buy it to play, you know, Mario or something, right? You know, it's that yeah. must have. What's the super hot or, yeah, there's a few of those things. But, yeah, yeah, super hot in, in, you know, a lot of other games out there. There's, I mean, there's, that's a great example. I and mean, there's a lot of really, really cool VR games. Mm-hmm. And I know, I know several people who bought a, v, a headset just for, or super hot or just for beat saber yeah, for example yeah, saber, right. um you know super popular games um so we're we're on the cusp of it we're starting to understand mm-hmm. what's possible and um to me that's that kind of stuff is really exciting because we don't know where it's really going to go so you know that that's one another reason why i love being in this industry is because it is that dependence on technology makes it so that all it takes 
is one new innovation and the whole thing is upended. Yeah. Again, the tipping point and all of a sudden. Well, I was going to say the other thing that excites me about um, where the industry is going, and it's actually one of the key reasons why I decided to take the job of running the Global Game Jam, mm-hmm. is because we are seeing the democratization of game development skills unlike any other time in history. Yeah. And, you know, now that you can, you know, most locales can download a version of you, free version of Unity or Unreal or, yeah. you know, a lot of these other or, or the core engine and all these other programs. Um, it's making game development so much easier now. And we, we really are at the point where we're almost, you know, if you want to, for example, write a book, you what do you do? You get something to write with and you get paper yeah, yeah. and you write, you know, or if you have technology, you can actually start typing it out. Mm. Same with artwork. I mean, if you just go buy canvas and paint and brushes and just start doing stuff, and we are pretty much about at that stage with game development where almost anybody who wants to make a game mm-hmm. can make a game. Right. That doesn't mean the game is going to be any good, but at the same token, anybody can go paint a picture. That doesn't mean the picture is going to be any good either, yeah. but it doesn't have to be because it's art. Mm-hmm. You know, it's self-expression and really that's what that's the core of it. And so what I'm super excited about, and we see this in the Global Game Jam community all the time, which is why it's so exciting to be a part of this org, is that you for example we have a theme that we throw out during the global game jam like last year's theme was repair and so Mm. think about one theme that goes out to cultures across 118 countries and how that theme is interpreted coming back to you through the medium of games and it's utterly fascinating to me Mm. as a as someone with a social science background to see how so many different people interpret that theme with their you know infusing their particular brand of creativity and skills And having that come back to you and you're just like, your mind is blown. (laughs) You know, when we're getting developers in, you know, South Sudan, in Iran and places where, you know, a lot of people may not think that there's a large development community. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, I I realize I've been privileged to be able to travel a lot of places. And and back in 2018, I was I keynoted the Tehran Game Conference in Iran. Wow. And it was an amazing experience. And it was and it was a giant event. There were 2000 developers there. Really? Um, the minister of culture of the country was there to support the event. The mayor of Tehran, who was a woman at the time, I, I don't know if she's still in office, but she huh. helped open the event. Um, it was just an amazing experience, you know, and with wow. all the rhetoric we hear on right. in the yeah, U.S. Right. about Iran, we I hope most of us understand that's, you know, it's political regime to political regime. The people themselves are people just like us yeah. who want a nice life. Yeah. They want their kids to grow up and be happy. Good and honest. You and know, they just exactly. And so it was so cool to be a part of that community for a while. Mm. And to get to know them. And that's just one example. But, you know, that gives me a tremendous amount of hope because for the longest time now, a lot of the games that we're seeing, especially the big commercial games, are so Western focused, um, you know, setting aside China, because China obviously has had tremendous success as a market, but they tend to be very insular. The games that are really popular in China tend to be games produced in China Mm -hmm. based on Chinese um, mythology or history, like the fantasy of the journey West, which is like one of the most successful games of all time. Mm -hmm. That game has not really been very successful outside of China because the themes are just so, you know, intertwined with Chinese culture. So it really, 
really resonates with them, whereas it doesn't elsewhere. But nonetheless, we're seeing a lot of narratives developed in a lot of different places around the world that are starting to see the light of day. Mm-hmm. And so what I what I see over the next five to 10 years, we're going to see so much more of that where more and more games are going to emerge from these different markets and be successful. Um, and people yeah. may not know where they're from. Um, Like I still, I still know a ton of people who have no clue that Angry Birds came from Finland. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Because it was so successful. They think it's an American game. It's gotta be America, right? Because I played, so it's gotta be America. Yeah. Or even Minecraft for that fact, they don't know that it was developed in Sweden originally, Yeah. Yeah. you know? So they just assume that it was an American product, but it's like, no, you know, not really. I mean, a lot of the most successful games in history were not from the U.S. at all. Mm-hmm. It is global, right? Like I, I look at the data from the people who are listening to this podcast, and it's about fifty-five percent, you know, North America, forty-five percent, you know, outside mm-hmm. of North America, right? So it shows it, it is global, and there's all these countries, and it just fascinates me that I'll be number four in some country, and I'll be like, wow, that's cool, <laughs> right? You know, it's it's not just Canada and the U.S. It, it is actually global. You know, that's exciting. Yeah. Thinking back, like, what's a funnier odd story? from, you know, working in the industry. I mean, you talked about Bill Gates, Steve Ballmer, <laughs> yeah. Tehran. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you got a list of well, them. Well, I have all kinds of stories. I, I think the, um, where do we start? <laughs> <laughs> well, let me just pick one. Um, one of the more interesting ones, uh, well, there was the Age of Empires one that was really tricky um, back in, way back when. Um, the other one that was interesting is when we had uh, on Halo 2, there was a character who in the final game is called the Arbiter. Mm-hmm. The Arbiter had a different name originally. Mm. And uh, that name was the Dervish. Dervish. And um so, and I'm saying this because this was already what discussed out in public many years okay, ago. So it's out. Um, yeah. The, yeah, Joe Statton made all of this public a long time ago. So, which kind of gave me the freedom to talk about it. Mm-hmm. But basically this character, I felt that there was a potential issue with the game because it back at that time when the game was going to come out, which I believe was what, 2003? Yeah, yeah, was, yeah early yeah. 2000s, a little after the yeah. millennium. So we have the Master Chief, who is a basically American soldier archetype. I don't care if it says UNSC on his shoulder. He's still, he has an American accent. <laughs> the the Sarge and all those people, yeah. they all have American accents because they're basically a ripoff of aliens anyway. Mm-hmm. But that aside, then you have the Covenant, which is a quasi-religious organization that's run by three prophets. Mm-hmm. And and the one of the prophets is called the prophet of truth, which is an often used synonym for Muhammad. Um, okay. It's very often used synonym for Muhammad. But I let I let that go because I'm like prophet of truth. You could apply that to any religious figure, you know, realistically, yeah, yeah. you know, to Jesus, to Moses, whoever. You could say they're a prophet of truth. So I'm like, okay, that's kind of a generic term. Mm-hmm. But then they have this term dervish, and dervish is a title from Sufi Islam. So a lot of people know about the whirling dervishes. Yeah, that's, which is that's, a that's what I was thinking of, is the whirling dervishes. Right, yeah, right. And, and the whirling dervishes, that is a religious ceremony that they are doing. Uh-huh. It's a religious process that they are doing. Mm-hmm. You know, for a lot of outsiders, it's just something really cool. It's like, look at their folk costumes, look at them spin, that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. But they're actually you know, doing a form of worship when they do that. Okay. And so the term dervish is very specific specific to these people in much the same way that Pope is very specific to the leader of the Catholic Church. And so to use that term dervish, to me, 
basically sets down a domino effect of saying, okay, wait a minute, the dervish is serving the prophet of truth, and this organization, the covenant, is this kind of quasi, they pass themselves off as sort of this quasi-religious group, and what do they want to do? Oh, they want to activate the halo rings and destroy all sentient life in the galaxy. (laughs) Whoa! So they want to commit this kind of genocide in the galaxy, Um, and the Master Chief, the good old American boy, is trying to stop them. And so you have all of that, that potential allegory, and this is like the first major title coming out after 9-11. Right, um, right, and this is a big title. Wow. It's the biggest title of the year, yeah. Halo Two, the follow-up to the game. Right. So I felt that that allegory is too risky. You cannot have that allegory in this game. We don't want to risk building that perception that that's the message that we're sending. Yeah. And I te- I tested this internally. I kind of took this idea to some of my friends of Muslim background mm-hmm. and, and others. And I said, so what do you see? I didn't lead them on. I just said, I just yeah. presented them the facts and I asked them, what do you see here? And they say, and I, one of them was just blatantly, he said, I see the U.S. seeking revenge on on uh, <laughs> on uh, Osama bin Laden. Mm. I'm like, okay. Right, right. <laughs> so yeah, you basically answered my question. Right. But yeah, I tested it with several people. And basically, I had enough reason to be concerned that using that name, Dervish, was going to potentially make the allegory too obvious, Mm -hmm. you know? And so that's where I basically pushed back and said, we need to change this name. And that's the only thing I found in the entire game that I felt needed to be changed. Everything else was totally cool. Um, I said, just that one thing. Let's just change that. And so it turned into a multi-month battle <laughs> over that name change. Wow. And uh, eventually it was changed because I, in my responsibility to running this team at Microsoft, if I did not get, if I felt the risk was significant enough to the company, my job was to escalate. And so mm. my escalation path was pretty short <laughs> on my end. So it basically went up to Steve Ballmer and, um, and he, sorry. yeah, he didn't, yeah, I know. <laughs> but he didn't, but yeah but he didn't hesitate he's like when when he basically heard what was going on basically just like change it right Right. what's the argument here change it right come up (laughs) with another word why yeah you know it's yeah just do it and and, and, you know so basically it was changed and i was um there were a couple people within the in the studio within bungie who really really didn't like me after that (laughs) uh, and it was kind of a shame because i'm such a fan of halo i'm such a huge fan of their work Mm -hmm. and i all I wanted was to make sure that this game was not perceived in the wrong way because I love it so much. Yeah. You know, and that's really where my, my, I mean, besides the fact that I was actually doing the job I'm paid to do, I was also doing it as a fan, you know, Mm -hmm. that I want this game to be successful. I don't want it to be sidetracked or distracted by this issue. So just change it. Um, And it did get changed. And frankly, I think the name Arbiter is a way better name for the character anyway, um, right. in just in my opinion, but it's just the fact that it got dragged out so long because there was internal resistance and yeah. it kind of touched yeah. upon the whole corporate relationship between Microsoft and Bungie and all this other stuff going on. Oh, right. But, yeah. you know, so there's a lot of layers to this particular problem, mm-hmm. but it did get changed because Balmer basically said, change it. Yeah. And that was it. You know, part of the problem, it was really part of the big pushback was not necessarily the name change. It was the fact that a lot of the voice recording had already been done. 
And oh, so it's that, that far along. So, okay. All yes. Right, so I, in I order see. to make this change, that meant actually getting the actors back in the studio right. and re-recording. Okay. And that was actually, and I completely empathize with that problem. That is a big problem. Yeah. That costs money. Money and, that and time scheduling and scheduling. And okay. Yeah. I, I see. So yeah. Yeah. that I could totally understand. Mm-hmm. And, and no, I did not factor that into my decision-making when I said it needs to be changed because ultimately I felt that it, it had to be changed no matter what. Yeah. You know, it's what I call a severity one issue which is a ship stopping issue <laughs> yeah so that was an interesting episode that was that yeah. was <laughs> on, on multiple levels especially because it involved a a, a franchise that i i love so much so but yeah. i'm i oh in the end i'm glad i i think we did the right thing um and i think it it, it all worked out fine i mean some people might look back on that and say well that's kind of you know, who's going to see that allegory? That's kind of silly. It's like, yeah, but you have to understand the the context of what was going on right after 9-11, those couple of years right after that, mm-hmm. there was a extreme hypersensitivity to any content related to Islam in the Middle East. And so yeah. we had to be really, really sensitive. I mean, we should always be sensitive, but, but at that time, it was super sensitive right. about these kind of topics. And so that just kind of made the risk even higher. Yeah. Yeah. And you were passionate about it and you're like, you you know, let's do the right thing. And frankly, I mean, that was that was a big part of the argument too. It's like I don't want people of Muslim background thinking that we're this is what we're saying about them. Mm-hmm. You know, because it is not a flattering you know, perception. No, right. You right. know, and I think this is the absolutely wrong way to go about this. It's like we don't want people to perceive this allegory. You know, it is not just because of what it might be saying as a potential message. Um, about 9-11, but also just the message it says about um, people of Muslim faith. And it's like, mm-hmm. I don't want that to be the message. And and that's just, that kind of mistake has long-term lasting effects right. on a company. What's a game you're playing right now that you're excited about? Oh, wow. What is it? Well, um, <laughs> well I started playing Cyberpunk. I don't know if I'm excited about it. I'm just playing it. <laughs> it is, I mean, it's it's On it what platform? Uh, PC, I'm assuming? or, or PC, yeah. Okay. yeah. So yeah, I'm so far so good. It's just, I just, I, right now I haven't had a lot of time. I mean, I, you know, I play Pokemon go every day. Um, okay. You know, I play, you know, some mobile games every day. Cause you know, you got to keep your streak yeah, up. Yeah, right. But um, of course, like I mentioned, I play Halo multiplayer pretty frequently, mm-hmm. maybe, two, you know, a few times a week. Um, one game that I'm really enjoying, um, probably one of the most coolest games I've played in a while is Cloudpunk, mm. um, which is a very kind of Blade Runner-ish slash mm. um, Fifth Element kind of world. Okay. And it's all sort of pixel art, but it is so cool. What platform is it? Um, I, it's, I'm playing on Steam, on PC, okay. uh, but I believe it's now on, um, I believe it's on the Switch um, I'm not Smart. sure if it's on the, co- the consoles, but I encountered this game when I was judging. I was doing a, because uh, I often judge contests. I'm asked to judge a lot of indie contests. And mm-hmm. um, there was one that was being uh, hosted by Tencent and I was on the judging mm-hmm. panel. And this game was part of the, the the array of games being judged. And I'd never heard of it, never seen it. Yeah. it. You know, it was a good game, at least for me, because I did not stop playing it. <laughs> it's like, you know, I mean, I there's been a lot of amazing games I've seen in contests that I've judged, but this one really stuck with me. I'm like, right. I was having so much fun with it. And so I, I'm still playing it. Hmm. You know, it's, it's great. And, and I guess the the only other one that was really fun, especially in a pandemic lockdown, was doing Flight Sim 2020 was really cool. Okay. Um, because I, I did work on Flight Sim many years ago. Um yeah, back in 386 yeah, I, when it used to oh, launch. Yeah. yeah. I I hear nothing but just cool, crazy stories about that. I'm like, man, my 
old MacBook was not run that. I, I need to get a new <laughs> PC. And but I kind of set a challenge for myself. So like I would take a plane and try and land it on a you know just select a mountaintop and try and land <laughs> on it. So that's kind of the game I made out of flight sim and. I was so happy when I flew a biplane, um, basically from where I live near Seattle and flew it to Mount Rainier and okay. was able to stick the landing on the glacier on Rainier. Wow. So <laughs> there you go. Is there anything I should have asked you about but didn't? I don't think so. I think we've we've covered a lot of territory. <laughs> uh people finding you online, website, Twitter. Yeah, I'm on uh I'm on geography, G-E-O-G-R-I-F-Y dot com. Mm-hmm. Um Geography is also my Twitter handle. Um it's also my profile name on LinkedIn. So yep. I'm always happy to connect with people if they want to reach out to me. Um, if they want to follow, I mean I I'm not like hyperactive on Twitter and some of the other platforms because I'm just frankly too busy um but you know i I often use it as a way to you know post occasional cool article about something related to my work Mm -hmm. um or announcing like hey i'm going to give this talk or whatever um so yeah i'm i'm not too hard to find and then just last question um what's one piece of advice that you give others working in the industry right now so my my I would say my biggest piece of advice comes from the wisdom of Mark Twain. Ah, um, there you go. Yeah, and he he once wrote that um, comparison is the death of joy, <laughs> and I love that phrase because going back to our earlier conversations about imposter syndrome right. and some of the, those problems. I have found that one of the biggest blocking issues I've seen with people who work in creative media or who want to work in creative media is that they spend way too much time comparing themselves to others. Mm -hmm. And frankly, social media has been the absolute worst at reinforcing this behavior Mm -hmm. because all it's about is comparing yourself to other people's posts. You know, I didn't get as many likes likes as they did. You know, all of that kind of stuff, all that, you know, that dopamine hit we get from that. Um, Anxiety that you get if you don't get the like. Yeah. yeah, it's just crazy. You know, it's just like you post a picture of like, hey, I drew this picture. Here's my latest artwork. Mm. Well, your friend in the same class or whatever got 54 likes and you got 32. Right. And it's like, oh, I'm a failure. Right. It's like that is such bullshit. Totally. It just yeah. it just really aggravates me it, because everybody Every single person is approaching their skill set from a unique position because mm-hmm. every single person's life experience is different. Yeah. It, it doesn't matter if you have 10 artists in a room, every single one of those artists, even if they all learned the same software, they're all approaching it differently because they that's what art is. Mm-hmm. It's, it's that self-expression. And so, you know, when you're comparing yourself to other, that, that phrase that comparison is the death of joy, it is so <laughs> true because when you see someone who does something that you perceive is better than you then it just sucks the life out of you right. you're like oh right. i'm never going to be that good yeah right. i can never be that like that right. but i'm gonna go binge on netflix two... and just give up yeah you know? and... exactly i'm a, i'm already a failure and i'm not even out of school or whatever <laughs> yeah. and to me it's like it that tells you two things right there number one First of all, never assume what that person's going through. You have no idea what their journey has been like, yeah. you know, and for all you know, they might be thinking the same thing about your work. <laughs> you know, they might be sneaking a peek at your stuff saying, wow, they can do that really well. I can never do that. The other thing, though, that is, is really important is that if you see someone whose work you really admire, you know, especially if there's someone like in a class or, you know, they're in the company you work in or something, yeah. guess what? You may have just found a mentor for yourself, Right. you know, don't 
don't be afraid to ask that person, first of all, you know, compliment them on their work, but then you can say, I would love to know how you did that. You know, is there a certain technique you used? Is there a certain software you used? You know, is there any chance, you know, we could, you know, get on a Zoom call or someday, you know, actually hang out face to face. And can you actually show me how you did that? Are you willing to do that? Because I would love to learn. Yeah. That's all it takes. Yeah, you know? the, the curiosity and just being genuine about it. And there's, and just the last little quick piece is also the ABC, which is always be creating, <laughs> you know, because one of the biggest problems I see, because I mentor a lot of students and I, I get approached by a lot of students and they say, I want to be an artist in the industry. I want to be a writer in the industry. I want to be whatever. And my first question often to them is, so what are you working on right now? And don't tell me your school projects. I want to know what you're working on right yeah, now on yeah, your own. Right. And if they say, well, I'm not working on anything, it's like, well, maybe you're pursuing the wrong profession because yep. most creative people, if you look across the board, writers yeah. write, painters paint, photographers take pictures, filmmakers make films, even with it's with their smartphone. Yeah. They have this compelling desire to create and to keep generating stuff. Mm-hmm. If you're not doing that, then you're not honing your skill. Yeah. And you're not perfecting your skill and you're not on the path to getting better at what you want to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because a lot of times the schools will give you a baseline, but if you only do that, you're not going to get dramatically better or distinguish yourself no. from anybody else. And then when you take your portfolio... With everybody else, they all got the same. Here's my train. Here's my clock. Here's my whatever. Like, great. I've seen that a, a billion times. Why would I hire you, right? So yeah. the fact that you you take those chops uh, and then you you learn and then you build upon that and you do stuff on your own and take it to the next level, that's the mm-hmm. only way you're going to distinguish yourself. Uh, if, if you just do the bare minimum and just do what the school tells you, yeah, you're going to have problems, right? Like, yeah. like you have to be doing stuff on your own to be passionate about it. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I know, I guess this is an overused analogy, but I mean, there's a reason why athletes who who you know they train for the olympics and they have these ridiculous rigorous training programs Mm -hmm. that they want to be an olympian and to you know be the you know get the gold medal and to be the most excellent person in that particular sport um but that training regimen it it basically what is it it's just constant repetition and and nuance Mm -hmm. identifying the things that need to be fixed and keeping the things that are doing that you're doing well and i mean this is obviously it's a lifelong process i mean every single one of us are, are still doing that. I mean, yeah. I've given countless hours or days worth of public talks, you know, up on a stage. And I'm still, I, I always analyze my talks. I always watch my talks, right. even if it's really uncomfortable, because I still want to get better at it. Right. I want to, I want to be better. How can you refine it? How can you make it better for the audience? You know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, thank you, Kate. Uh, this has been a great discussion. I'm glad we had a chance to meet, you know, virtually and, and all that kind of stuff. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's been great. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Game Dev Advice, the Game Developers Podcast. Go to the website at gamedevadvice.com and you can find the show notes along with show notes for all the other episodes. Please also check out the new Patreon page at patreon.com backslash gamedevadvice. Have a lot of options up there for how you can support the show. Again, that's patreon.com backslash gamedevadvice. Thanks again for listening and being part of the show. Take care. Bye-bye.